Open up to Acts 18. Acts 18 is where we're going to be. I am absolutely pumped to get to share with you some of the things God's been sharing with me this week already. And I want you to think about this, that um, I put out to you, I submit to you, that you are being evangelized and discipled all the time. That you're being evangelized and discipled all the time. Now, this event just happened, and... Prime Day is not just Prime Day. I want you to look. Initially, there is good news announced to you about Prime Day, that there is money savings to be had. But as this happens year over year, what ends up happening is you actually begin to plan and save for it. Maybe you begin to think, oh, I'll wait until Prime Day, and then I'll save up and do some shopping then. Here's what happens. You done got yourself evangelized and discipled by Google, right? And here's the creepy thing about Google. They're really, really, really good at evangelizing and discipling you. With every click, with every search that you do, in fact, your devices, for many of you, are listening to you, and they are predicting what they want to put in front of your face, So they're actually getting better at evangelizing and discipling you all the time. Facts. Look it up. It's true. Now, think about evangelism and discipleship for a minute. These are um, churchy words, but what I'm trying to show you is that it doesn't just happen in church. Let me give you a really simple explanation of evangelism. Evangelism is proclaiming good news. I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan. I'll explain why if you want to know afterwards over a croissant. But... The San Antonio Spurs nation got the number one draft pick this year, and so there was giant proclamations going on in San Antonio about the good news. People were proclaiming the good news that now there's finally hope once again in San Antonio. That's just evangelism. Now, that can happen with a sports team. Uh, That can happen with bands and food and places and cars and people right? People are constantly proclaiming good news. How about diets? I've got good news for you. This is your path to happiness. And people are evangelizing all the time. What's discipleship? Discipleship is simply training people up in a way, teaching people how to do things. You have your favorite activities that you have done. You were discipled into those. Someone taught you, instructed you how to do that. I remember we had this kid in our, in our youth group one time, and he was sort of tinkering around on the guitar, and then one day he comes and he goes, hey, let me show you what I got, and he plays this amazing song. I'm like, how'd you do that? YouTube. He just learned on YouTube, and he has an endlessly patient teacher discipling him on how to play this song. It was really, really incredible. So discipleship and evangelism happen all the time. I want you to look at this title picture for a second. It's sunflowers on a cloudy day. Sunflowers on a cloudy day. Why is that important? Here's why. Did you know that sunflowers actually track the sun as it goes across the sky? If you were to go out and just put a a camera, like a little GoPro, on a sunflower, you would watch it do this throughout the day, every day. That sunflower tracks the sun. Catch this. Whether the sun is out in all of its glory or whether it's hidden behind clouds. What a picture of a Christian. What do disciples of Jesus do? We wake up. Every morning, and we track the sun, S-O-N, whether he's out in all of his glory in our minds in that moment, or whether he's hidden behind clouds of doubt, behind clouds of despair, behind clouds of hopelessness, 
behind clouds of just feeling groggy on a Monday morning. That's what Christians do. We track the sun. So this picture, all day, every day, you'll see what I'm talking about. But in this chapter, we're going to just see what it looks like. Our spiritual ancestors that just gave themselves to this mission. I want you to notice the relationship between evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. It's all over in the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts. These are both mandates, that is, commands from Jesus, that we are both to evangelize and to disciple. Now, I'm not going to take time to do this, but think about it for a second. Right now, if someone said, could you give me an explanation of what's the difference between evangelism and discipleship, and how do they interact? Just think about that for a second. These are really, really common words that we use all of the time. What do they mean, and how do they sort of interact? Let me take Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what's the last part of the great commandment? Anyone know? Say it, say it really loud, Jen. And, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he gives this reassurance, and surely I'll be with you till the end of the age. So without going too deep into this, what if, what if we just look at it this way? Go and make disciples. Baptizing them is evangelism. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded is discipleship. Church, we're not called to just have more and more babies and make more and more spiritual babies. We're really the midwife, right? God's the one giving the birth. But we're to take these babies into a family and train them up in the way they should go. We see this all the time. No one celebrates you if you have a bunch of children all over the planet, and you're like, I don't know where they are. I don't know. I just just make babies. Ew, that's gross and weird and creepy and bad. Don't do that. Make a baby in marriage good. Train up the child in the way they should go. Great. Evangelism, discipleship. So this just happens over and over. We see this interplay going on. Here's the reality. The more you evangelize, if you are proclaiming good news and they're responding in faith, you know what you will need to do? You will need to figure out discipleship. As you disciple and train people up in the way they should go, they will be trained up to sing of their first love, of their reward they have in Jesus. They will open their mouth and more evangelism will take place. Do you see the circle? It's written in a circle. Evangelism, discipleship, evangelism, discipleship. One spurs on the other. One feeds the other. And we're just going to see this uh, in this chapter. This is for all Christians, and this is a massively important um, idea. This is a sermon slide. This is a title slide, actually, from a sermon in 2 Timothy. All of our past sermons, by the way, live online. If you ever want to go look at 2 Timothy, go look at that sermon series. But disciples, disciple. So this is for all Christians to get their head around evangelism and discipleship. It's really simple and clear, so there's no mistakes. Every Christian is called to make disciples, not just be disciples. Huge difference, right? Are you a Christian? Yes, that's being a disciple. Are you making disciples? That's the call. That's the mandate. That's what it means to be a disciple. But we give ourselves to this work, and this was part two of this sermon, like Jesus. 
We don't get to just disciple people the way we want to. In fact, Jesus called out people who were super religious, knew the Bible better than any of us in this room, and yet Jesus said this, shock alert from your pastor, I'm quoting Jesus here, you make these converts, you disciple them, so they're twice the son of hell as you are. Woo! Shots fired. Not all discipleship is good discipleship. Just ask Google, right? Probably has people hooked on purchasing things, on scrolling, ever wanting more. So we disciple, all Christians are called to disciple, and they're called to disciple like Jesus. So discipleship is you following Jesus. Discipling is helping others follow Jesus. Can you nod your head with me if you think this, like, I'm trying to boil this down to say this is really simple. This is for every Christian. I think sometimes people hear discipleship, discipleship, and they think it's like, well, I don't, what's your plan of discipleship at your church? I don't know. And we think when you have a big complex plan, you know what it is? It's helping people follow Jesus. How many drove someone else to church today? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you drove anyone else to church. You are discipling that person. You are helping them get to church to follow Jesus. There's a team of people that show up when you're just waking up on a Sunday morning, and they do this week in and week out, and they open up back gates, and they turn things on, and they dial things in, and they set stuff up. You know what they're doing? They're discipling you. They are creating an environment. They are, they are creating things to help you follow Jesus. So it's, it's, it's really straightforward. This chapter shows us an incredible picture of all of this in action. What we get to see is real-life scenarios and kind of peek in and learn from them. Chapter 18 is the wrap-up to the second missionary journey of Paul. He has two final legs. Remember, he had the power from the Holy Spirit, and he was off to finish the mission. I wanted to show you a map um, so we can kind of get our heads around where, where he's at. This is the city of Corinth. You see just to the right of it is the city of Athens. That's where he just was. And so he leaves Athens. That was Matt's sermon last week. He's dialoguing with the philosophers, right? And he leaves Athens and he heads over to Corinth. We're still in Greece. And he would spend the next year and a half ministering in the city of Corinth. And what we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that Paul arrived in Corinth, catch this, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The great apostle Paul had bad days. He shows up in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It's a low point in his life. Why? Here's the simple answer. Because ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. We're in a battle. If you're ever trying to help someone follow Jesus, there are forces working against you, striving to have them not follow Jesus. I came across this this week. Who said ministry is stressful? I'm 35 and I feel great. Now, not only pastors get this, not only missionaries get this, but disciple-making disciples of Jesus get this. They go, man, it ages you. There's something about it that's just, that's just hard, often. And it takes a toll in some different kinds of ways. Paul's feeling it. 
He just left Athens with mixed results. Remember, the text says this. Some Athenians believed, others mocked him, and others engaged him in the dialogue, but all they wanted was intellectual entertainment. That's what they did all day, every day. They loved to just discuss new ideas with people. And so Paul leaves Athens with sort of mixed results. Let me ask you this question. How hard, how hard would you work to tell someone about Jesus? Think about that for a second. Like, Just think personally. How hard would you work to tell someone about Jesus? I'll tell you a way we could put a number on it. We could ask a different question. We could say, how far would you go to tell someone about Jesus? How hard would you work would be very hard to measure, but how far would you go to tell someone about Jesus would be easier. How about this? Would anyone go to Memphis, Tennessee? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about that for a second. On foot. Do you know that between the years 49 and the year 52, so a short little span of time, Paul traveled, catch this, approximately 2,000 miles by foot, walking around, and about 1,000 miles by boat. That's a lot of travel. In fact, 2,000 miles is leaving Neighborhood Bible Church this morning and walking to Memphis, Tennessee. So when you begin to put your head around the scope of what Paul did in terms of what, what he was doing, and why was he doing all of this? To tell people about Jesus. He was a disciple who made disciples. He had a Lord and Savior that said, go, and he went. And guess what? His hardship wasn't that he stayed in like little two-star Motel 6s along the way. He's getting beaten along the way, chased out of town along the way. So he shows up in Corinth at a low point. I love how Bilbo Baggins uh, says this. I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and uh, this is so British of him to say it this way. But maybe you've been here. Paul arrives at a hard place personally, just internally, emotionally, spiritually, even financially strapped. But it's not just a hard place personally, it's also a hard place physically. In fact, I was sort of marrying these ideas. This could, this could be called uh, Corinthifornia or Californinth. Like kind of blending California and Corinth, okay? Um, many people are leaving California, not just for tax purposes and some of those sort of things, but many Christians are abandoning California, the place that I was born and raised and loved dearly, because it's a spiritually dark place. They are sort of running for safer ground. They're running for lighter ground. Here's sort of the two sides of Corinth. See if this rings a bell at all to the Bay Area. One is that they were influential. They were really proud of their commerce and their ideas. And secondly, they were immoral. They were really open with their sin and rebellion. Does this not sound like the Bay Area? There's no shame in how people live their life. They are celebrating and proud of what God calls awful. There was a saying called, to play the Corinthian. To play the Corinthian meant to live a life of lustful depravity. 
Anytime your city has a slogan that goes before you and sort of like calls out your rebellion, you know you're a, you know, sort of a sin city. What happens in Vegas, right? Like they have their own little slogan that just celebrates and calls out their depravity. This is Corinth. So Paul leaves Athens. If Athens is sort of Ivy League, he heads over to Corinth. And Corinth is sort of party school rambunctious. It's a two-port city, so think San Francisco and Oakland. And anytime there's a port, what happens is you are importing and exporting all the good from the world and all the bad from the world. And port towns tend to be really immoral sexually. That's Corinth. That is where he's walking into. So he's having a hard time in life. He goes to a hard place. But hard places are often the most strategic. Is there a better place for Paul to be salt and light than in Corinth? Then turn the question on us. Is there a better place to be salt and light than in the Bay Area? So here he is in Corinth where he'd spend about a year and a half. Here's what I want to walk through this morning. I want to walk through how it happened that Paul had this ministry go on for a year and a half. It's always important to remember the genre. The genre of Acts is historical narrative. In other words, it is describing what happened to people from long ago in a faraway place. So why should we take time this morning and look at things that happened to people long ago in a faraway place? I would submit to you because we can learn from people before us. Scripture says these things are written down. Why would God include this in the Bible? They are written down for our instruction. I hope to show you from the text today that this is still how God works. You don't need to write things down this morning. I figured you'd be kind of burned out from the heat, so I just gave you the points, okay? Here they are. We're going to walk through these in the text, but he found teammates, he got funding, and he heard from Paul. So number one, he found teammates. Look at Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Pause. Do you know why this couple left Italy? Persecution. God is even in the persecution. This happens at Jerusalem. All the people scatter except for the church leaders. You know what that means? It means that other people needed to become church leaders in new places. God works in the persecution. So Claudius had all, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, so they had to leave. And he went to see them. Verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. All right, pause. Thus far, Team Paul has had exciting recruitments. He's had big send-offs. He's had a very public split with him and Barnabas. He's had replacements. And now today, in this chapter, he's getting new teammates. You ever go back and sort of dissect how you got really close to a tight ministry person? Like a teammate in ministry that you just go, man, my Christian walk wouldn't be different. My ministry that I do would be so different without this couple, without this family, without this individual. Let me put this out to you. I think it's really healthy to go back and track and give praise to God. We just sing this line, God, you've just been so good to me. It's good to stop and take inventory and go, how did we even get connected? Let me stop and remember that story and tell that story and celebrate that story. Because the teammates and the help that I have had in my life are way bigger than me. 
It wasn't my brilliance going out and seeking the right people. It was God bringing the right people at just the right time. Remember, Paul is at a low point physically, emotionally, even financially. And God sends the right people at the right time. Let me say this. I think some of us are not open to, to the new. We're not open to new ideas. We're not open to new people. I'll tell you what had to happen for this to occur. Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had to be open. They had to be open to something new. I think sometimes people miss ministry connections because we're either moaning about past friends who aren't here or we are sort of dreaming about the ideal friend who doesn't exist. We're not open to the people right in front of us. Look to your left and right for a moment. See what I see, okay? We are not open to the people right in front of us because we're thinking about a past time. Why isn't this church like my last church? Why isn't this ministry like my last ministry? Why aren't my neighbors like my last neighbors? Why isn't my pastor like my last pastor? So we're not open to what's right in front of us. Or we just have this like idealized picture. Young men and women do this all the time with the future spouse. They have this idealized picture of who that person would be, and they miss great people right in front of them. So here Paul is, Priscilla and Aquila, open to new connections. They're Jewish. They connect over being Jewish, but they're also tent makers. So I don't know if they met at the Jewish community center playing basketball one night or over a meal at a Jewish place or just in the, you know, in the marketplace, but somehow they get connected. They have the same background and the same job. Guess what? That's a pretty normal average way to connect with new people in a new city, isn't it? It is. You sort of go find people with similar interests and whatever else. And guess what? God can bring people together. Here's what's rolling through my mind. This isn't my notes. But these two right here in the front row, they had a similar interest in dancing. And uh, they were over. They're helping me. Next Sunday, by the way, I'll, I'll miss you. I am marrying off our first daughter, Briley. So um, you could be in prayer for me that I won't weep through the entire service. But they were at our house helping me learn our, our dad-daughter dance. And it was fun rehearing the story that they connected. They began a brand new family together over just a common interest of dance. That's what's going on right here. So they all end up really close, and Team Paul gets a huge boost. I want to just take a quick look at, at this ministry couple because it's really profound. Um, Priscilla and Aquila. Here's a few things about them. Jot these things down. Number one is this. They didn't keep distance with Paul because he was uber-gifted and well-known. Sometimes I think we have a sense of being like, well, I'm sure they're really busy or they're really famous or they're really well-known or whatever, so I'm just going to kind of keep my distance from them. That's bad for the person who's uber gifted, and it's bad for the church. Live your theology. What's your theology? Every part of the body of Christ is important. Say amen. Every part of the body of Christ is important. Say amen. Amen. In fact, the hidden parts are the most important part. You remove your lungs today? See ya. You're done. Your kidney, your spleen, like all these little things, like you're just done. So, they didn't let popularity or fame get in the way of friendship. They just moved close. In fact, they, they so befriended that they, they lived with, with each other. Um, number two, these two are inseparable. Um, I really love this idea. In fact, um, 
I, I, there's many couples that come to mind. And I go, I can't even say the one name without saying the other. We don't think of Priscilla and Aquila apart. We always hear them together. Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. Over and over and over, we, we hear this. What a ministry team this is. Later on in this chapter, we're not going to take time to it, but uh, um, Apollos comes up. He's a brilliant speaker. He knows the word of God to a point. And together as a ministry team, guess what they do? They correct him in a, in, a, in a better way, a more accurate way. Let us give you the rest of the story so you can go on doing ministry even more fruitful. Uh, later in the chapter, verses 18 to 20, we're not going to look at it, but they leave Corinth, set sail for, Eph- for Ephesus. Everyone wants Paul to stay at Ephesus. Paul, you're the big superstar speaker. You're the big well-known person. You know what Paul says? No, I'm not doing that. I'm leaving Priscilla and Aquila to do ministry together here. Why? Because Paul had trained them up. They were disciples who knew how to make disciples. So this ministry team is really, really profound. They minister together. Here's number three. Priscilla was really prominent in the early church. Six times they are, they are mentioned together as a couple, and she is mentioned first four of those times. Four of the times she's mentioned first. Now, this is really noteworthy. It's abnormal to have the woman mentioned first. So what that says is that she was influential, She had a significant role in the ministry of this couple. This is just further proof. And Luke does this in his gospel. He does this in the book of Acts. It's further proof. Anytime someone says, oh, the Christian church was founded by by white, straight males. First of all, that's off on so many levels. But they will think it's male-dominated. The mission of Jesus Christ is not a male movement. It is a people movement. It is the people of God. In Christ, there is no male or female. So he uses both of them. And to have her be so prominent is really powerful. One little fun side note. Lydia, first convert in Europe. Remember Paul, gets his, he gets this vision that he's supposed to go and help the Macedonians. It's a man calling him. And who's the first person we see responding to the gospel? Lydia and her household. Just kind of cool. These little nuggets that Luke puts in there for us. All right, number three, they're hospitable. Paul lived with them. Apollos is instructed in their home. And in both Ephesus and Rome, churches met in their house. It probably meant they were people of means and had a big enough house. But guess what? It's not enough to have a big house or a big bank account. You have to have a big heart. A big heart says, hey, my money's your money. Mi casa es su casa. Get over here. Let's meet in the house. You're going to spill on the new carpet? That's cool. We'll figure it out. This couple had people in their home. Finally, they were all in. Romans 16.4, listen to this introduction to this couple. Paul says this, they risked their necks for my life. Christian, I hope you have ministry teammates that right now you're praising God for. In fact, that's part of your community group questions. Consider re-letting them know how thankful you are for teammates in your life. Do you have anyone that would risk their neck for your life? Paul is a dangerous guy to be friends with, I'd imagine. I mean, if they're throwing rocks at Paul, and you're the guy standing next to him holding his iPad, you're like, eee. scary to be around Paul. This couple was all in because they were workers, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Whatever your job, ethnic background, marital status, follow this couple's example. As I was studying this week, I, just, I was brimming with joy at the people in my life that are real-life, modern-day, super-servant couples like Priscilla and Aquila. 
eternally grateful for them. Here's number two. Teamwork makes the dream work and money helps. Money is, money is not absolutely necessary to ministry. You know why? The thing we have to give away is free to us. Cost Jesus greatly, but it's free to us. You take this work away, you take the air conditioning away, you take lights away, you take speakers away, guess what? You, you, you get to go do this. How do we know this will be true? You can, do it, you can have a revival service in prison, right? We've already seen that in the book of Acts. They lock you up, start singing. Kind of have a captive audience. Like, shut up! No. Like, what are you going to do? I'm just going to keep preaching. Keep preaching Jesus. We'll let you out. Okay. Get let out. Keep preaching Jesus. We'll put you back in jail. Sweet. We'll go back there. So we don't really need money. But money is helpful. Funding is helpful. And what I want to show you is this. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So not only is ministry hard, but ministers work hard. I don't know of a better example of someone with an incredible work ethic than Paul. I read this quote this week that um, no one ever writes biographies of lazy people. You know, you just think about it. Like apathetic, lazy people, you just don't hear about them. Why? Because there's nothing, there's no legacy. Paul had impact because Paul worked. Here's how other translations translate verse 5. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Paul spent all his time preaching the word. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. What changed? Funding. What, it, what happens is this. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, Paul is able to go full time. Before that, he's a tent maker. So he's working a regular job, paying his bills, and on the evenings and weekends, he's preaching and witnessing. His time is split. All of a sudden, Paul, uh, I mean, sorry, Timothy and Silas arrive from Macedonia, and that gives him the freedom to now go full-time. What an incredible picture of Christian giving. Now, because saints from somewhere else are supporting him, Paul is able to go in full time. These Macedonian Christians are actually on mission with Paul in a very, very daily, tangible way. So giving to the ministry leads to loads of good. These Christians in Macedonia took Jesus' words seriously and literally. Look at verse 38 of Luke. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So church, I command you in the name of Jesus, give. Give generously and give sacrificially. I hope you don't just give to NBC. I hope this, if you're a member or regular attender, I hope you are investing in the ministry here. We're always really open with our finances. There's three of us who are full-time. Matt, who's off at Disneyland today playing. Pray for him. Um, Andres and myself, right? I'm kidding, Matt. He might listen to this someday. Um, we're here full-time. We're here full-time, and it's not lost on us. We talk about this. We pray for you regularly. We recognize the, the stewardship it is to be given time each day to say, we are not working a job in the Silicon Valley so that we can give ourselves, spend ourselves, work hard like Paul to, to create loads of good. God, this has to be you. So keep giving. Paul's ministry was extensive. There's a line in Hamilton that he wrote like he was running out of time. You really do write like you're running out of time. I think of Paul. Paul did that. 
In fact, during this time in Corinth, catch this, he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And you wonder if those Christians in Macedonia had any idea they were funding the Bible. Like when they sacrificially pooled their money, sent it with, with uh, Timothy and Silas, and it shows up in Paul's lap. Can you imagine the, the spiritual reward that someday they get news? Oh, by the way, you helped pay for the Bible to be written. That's pretty incredible. All right, so teammates, funding, and vision. Do you see how transferable this is to today? I think about the start of Foster the City. I think about the start of this church. I think about the start of some of our most important ministry as a ministry couple. Teammates, funding, vision from God. Our family would not exist today without those three things. God brought teammates together, first and foremost, Becky and I, but also a host of people around us. God brought funding to us that we did not have on our own. And God very clearly called us in different ways. Look at verse 9. We just sang God of this city. God of this city is a song of hope. I hope that came through to you. God, you are not done here. We're convinced because there's still an outpost of Christians here. There's much to be done here. You know how he's going to do it? Through the local church. Through Christians. So look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Remember, he's at a low point. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What precedes this vision sounds like the ebb and flow of ministry that I know. See if any of this rings true. There's hard ground with no reception. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, his countrymen, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Guys, Paul keeps going to the synagogue. Matt said this last week. He goes to the synagogue as was his custom. He keeps having a heart for his countrymen. They keep rejecting him. We don't really know the tone of his voice when he says this, right? What's the tone of Paul's voice when he says this? Let me show you the complexity of ministry. Look, look back to Luke here for a second with me. This is in your notes. You can read it later. But Jesus says this, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop them from taking your tunic. Question, is Paul disobeying the command of Jesus by saying, your blood be on your own heads, Jews? I'm out. I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. If you take verses in isolation, you create what's called a cult. And you become a false teacher, and you're on the road to hell. Please don't do that. Like, that's terrible. Jesus did say this. So is Paul disobeying this? I would submit no, and here's why. Jesus also said this in Luke 9. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake, dust, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Friends, there is a time to stay and try longer, and there is a time to move on. How do you know? How do you know? God will keep talking to you. God communicates with us. It's the call of God. Keep answering the call of God. 
Jesus, you know, is this one of yours in the city that you still have that I should keep pouring into or not? And he will lead and direct you. He didn't despair, but found hope in the hard. I'm not going to read this. This is such a great passage, but we're short on time. Go read 2 Corinthians 1 for yourself. All right. Let me show you one funny thing in the text. The text paints a really funny picture. Uh, Look at verse 6. He shook out the garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. It says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. (laughs) So it just sounds funny to me. Like He's like, Peace out, Jews, like I tried. He might like walk down the, the walkway to the end of the sidewalk. He gives a little shake of his feet. He turns right. I'm off to the Gentiles. Walks over, walks to the next door. Knock, knock, knock. He goes to a Gentile who lives next door to the synagogue. Guess what? The Gentiles received with gladness. This is the ebb and flow of ministry. You try and pour out. The very people who should get it most are the Jews. And once and again, they just argue and revile and push against him. So I think with much grieving, he says, I've sounded the alarm. Your blood be on your own hands. I'm going to the Gentiles. And there, on this occasion, they don't try to kill him. Woohoo! They actually receive the word. They get baptized. They begin to grow. Evidence of this all-day, everyday mindset was in Paul. We see that it was in this ministry couple, Aquila and Priscilla. It was in Silas and Timothy. It was growing in Apollos. And it can be ours as well. I close with this verse. Look at Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, there's evangelism, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month. That's just a lifetime of discipleship evangelism and discipleship, discipleship and evangelism. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What an incredible picture. Church, this never-ending renewable energy is ours in Christ today. And lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Let me invite the band to come on up. Let me close with an example of how this happens in real time. Monday morning, I show up to work. I get a call about 9.30 in the morning. It is from a parent of these three boys I had in youth ministry at Los Gatos Christian Church in the 90s. She still attends Venture. She calls me up. She says, hey, uh, my friend works at the Jewish Community Center, and there's a 17-year-old Afghan refugee who is going to need a placement, a home, for between two weeks and six weeks. And I just thought I'd start with you, because I know your church is really into this stuff. I said, yeah, we are. Thanks for calling. I said, I tell you what, did you know we actually have some families pursuing refugee foster care in our church right now? She said, I didn't know that. I said, let's pray and see what the Lord will do. That was Monday. Put some texts out just after that. Tuesday, I had a meeting with some Foster the City friends via Zoom. Had this conversation. We prayed about it. Friday, I get a text at 5.50 p.m. And it says this. 
It says the George family, one of our foster the city families, went to go show up to be the placement, and it turns out Catholic Charities was already able to place this 17-year-old. I just love this picture. Because what this is, is it turns out that family didn't even get to meet the need yet. Why? Because someone else had met the need already. God has people in this city. God is not done in this city. Right now, today. In fact, I can't think of a better way, by the way, to to, to practice evangelism and discipleship than to welcome someone into your home. Whether it be two weeks, two hours, or a lifetime. Pray with me. God, thank you for activating us. I thank you for people in this church that love you and serve you and praise you with their whole life. God, I thank you for people who are brilliant at making money and they're generous. They give wisely and faithfully. God, I I am moved to tears when I sit and think about the way you move pieces around. Teammates and money and a word from you at just the right time. God, help us to stop and take inventory and and stock of God. How did you even get us here? What are you doing with us in the future? God, as we turn our attention right now, our heart right now, to our first love, our reward that we woke up with if we're in you. God, I pray this moment of intimacy and reflection and remembrance wouldn't be mere religious ritual, but God, that you would meet us powerfully in communion just now.